Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. Now, we had Sol David on earlier in the year talking about the origins of the SBS, the Special Boat Service. And now we're going to have to rectify this historical imbalance on the podcast by getting an episode back on with Damien Lewis to tell us about the formation of the SAS and an ultra-secret mission that changed the course of the Second World War. This is an episode from the History Hit Archive. As you know, once a week I like to pull out an episode that I think deserves a bit more attention. But here on the Warfare Podcast with me, your presenter, James Rogers, I bring you two original episodes every single week. We truly are on the front line of military history, and we bring you histories from all around the world, from different eras that range from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. Have a look through our back catalogue of over 200 episodes and if you think we're missing something or if you want to share your own family histories then send us an email straight to warfare at historyhit.com. Also if you're enjoying the podcast then go and pop us a five-star review. It only takes a second on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves it history. But here now is the brilliant Damien Lewis on the formation of the SAS. Enjoy. Damien Lewis, thanks for coming back on the show. It's another SAS smash hit. I mean, they were all over the place in the Second World War. Absolutely, they were. And the really interesting thing about this story is that um, it uncovers the untold origin story of the SAS. That's what I'm really excited about. So, I mean, I didn't realise, and I think very few people do realise, that before the SAS were officially formed in North Africa by David Sterling, there was an SAS unit which existed, and it was formed in autumn of 1940. So how it came about was that two days after, after Dunkirk... Colonel Dudley Clark, who was a maverick, uh, little appreciated figure of the Second World War, actually, he went to Churchill with a proposal, and his proposal was, we need to form a British version of the Boer Commandos, because he'd been brought up in South Africa, and he'd seen how, you know, 25,000 to 50,000 Boers on horseback, wearing their, their normal farming clothes with their hunting rifles, had harassed and harangued hundreds of thousands of British troops, and he'd seen how effective they were. And he said to Churchill, we need to form a British version of the commandos to strike back hard at the German enemy and prove Britain has the will to fight. And so Churchill loved the idea, gave it his blessing. And Churchill challenged Clark. He said, within 
three weeks by the end of June, you have to get a raid back across the channel. And indeed, Clark did. He got 90 commandos, fledgling commandos, in RAF crash boats, so uh, inflatable boats hardly suitable for landing, got them across the channel and they carried out a raid. It was called Operation Collar and they attacked a German uh, a sentry post. It was the first raid of its kind. And, uh, in the it summer was, of 1940? Yeah, proof of concept. Literally three weeks after uh, Dunkirk. But Churchill had seen what, you know, what, what the Germans had done in, 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 when they'd taken Belgium, which of course using the first ever use of airborne troops, glider-borne and parachutists when they took the Belgian forts. And Churchill said, I also want an airborne commando. And because uh, <laughs> the War Office, you won't believe this, but the War Office had... Um, <laughs> they had objected to this idea of commandos full stop, you know, irregular forces, not obeying orders, not wearing proper uniforms, you know, really not what the British Army does. So they had objected to the word, to the name commando, and they'd said, you will call them, because they, they called for special service volunteers, all the commanders were volunteers. They said, you will call them special service troops, or the SS for short. God. This is the God's honest truth. <laughs> And, and, and Clark had countered by saying, well, you know, may as well call them the Gestapo if you want to call them the SS. And it had taken Churchill to intervene to get the name Commando blessed and, and, and authorised. But Churchill said, I want five to 10,000 airborne commandos by, by the end of the year. You know, this was an unprecedented demand because this was a completely unproven form of warfare, apart from the, um, for, from the German operations. And because... Uh, Clark wanted to differentiate the airborne commandos from the seaborne commandos. He took that name, Special Service Troops, and inserted the word air. So they became the Special Air Service Troops. And that was the beginning, so we're talking September 1940, of the Special Air Service legend. Huh. And so actually Sterling borrowed the name or came up with it independently? Well, that's the fascinating thing. So, you know, by January 1941, you have 500, you have a battalion. It was called 11 SAS Battalion. And they, Clark was very, very clever guy, uh, believed in, in trickery and deception. And Clark said, let's call them 11 SAS Battalion so that enemy believe you've got 10 others already trained. I mean, brilliant, you know, trickery. And uh, so by yeah, January, you had 500 trained SAS airborne troops who'd, who'd earned their wings and um, so they needed to prove the concept and that's where the first ever airborne operation by Allied forces were carried out so and this, this, this is how the book opens it's an utterly brilliant operation um, there's a professor of classics at Oxford University right love that great place to start <laughs> who before uh, being at Oxford was the director of the British school in Rome so he knows Italy intimately. And he goes to the SOE, Special Operations Executive, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare, and says, we can kill three million Italians and the German soldiers co-located with them who live around the ports, the vital ports of Toronto and Brindisi, where all the war materials are being shipped to North Africa, by blowing up the Apulian Aqueduct, which is the aqueduct which ran through the Apennine Mountains and provided fresh drinking water to these three million people along the coast. He said, there is no other drinking water there. If we blow up that aqueduct, we are, they are either all die of thirst or they have to flee as refugees. And, and at that stage, it was just, it was codenamed Project T. And it was put to Winston Churchill. And Churchill read the proposal and said, you know, and, and just signed off on it, I approve WSC, right? It's, it's scribbled on the documents in, in, in the archives. And 
Because the SOE didn't have enough agents to carry it out at that time, it was given to combined operations, and it became the first mission of 11 SAS. So come February 1941, they mount up in eight Whitley bombers. All they had, you know, plummeting through this hole cut in the floor one by one, risking the Whitley kiss where you bang your head as you, as you try to go through and knock yourself out. And they flew from the UK to Malta, so they braved enemy airspace, all the way across occupied Europe. And in Malta, Pritchard, who was the Major Pritchard, Tag Pritchard, an, an army boxing champion, heavyweight boxing champion, he was the commander of the operation, got his men, gathered them on Malta Airport, and that was the first time they were actually told what the operation was. That's how strict the secrecy was. And bear in mind, these chaps, you know, they'd volunteered for this mission, and all they had been told is, your chances of coming back are not very high. And they'd all step forwards. And so 36 raiders at, at Malta on the airport, and Pritchard briefs them on the mission. And they, they've been given a cover story back in the UK, at their training base, which was that they were going to deploy for a raid in, in, in Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, against the Italians. And when they realise they're actually flying into the heart of fascist Europe to attack the, this aqueduct and potentially kill three million Italians and the Germans with them, uh, German troops with them, they compose a song there and then on the spot. It's, it's a bit rude, so I can't... But, but the last line is, we will deliver a surprise to Il Duce. And so they mount up the aircraft, they fly in, they, 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 they uh, parachute in, in... And is this Britain's first ever... Use of combat airborne infantry. Yeah, absolutely. First ever airborne operation by Allied forces is, is it's February 1941. By then it's codenamed Operation Colossus. And there's so much hanging on this mission because it's not so much... I mean, obviously it's, it's strategically important if you can blow up the aqueduct and, 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 and achieve the objectives. It's a great thing to do for the war. But more importantly, this is proof of concept. And the really fascinating thing is that Churchill and the few other believers, they had so much opposition because... And you can understand why, in a way, the high command and the politicians in the UK, they were, they were fighting the Battle of Britain. They were terrified of Operation Sea Lion, the, the German invasion. They wanted to roof Britain in and, 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 and have a wholly defensive mindset. Why would you waste resources, scarce airframes, this specialist training on offensive operation hundreds of miles from home? Well, Churchill argued, as did those who were his supporters, that we need to make the enemy unable to sleep in their beds at night, wherever they may be. We need to set Europe ablaze. We need to show we can strike back no matter where. And if you can do it, you know, it was an, it, you know, hundreds of miles behind enemy lines, as this operation was, you can do it anywhere. And the reason it had to be an airborne operation, incidentally, was because you couldn't land and put a seaborne force in because the, the Trigino aqueduct, so the, the target point, the vulnerable target point of the whole um, uh, aqueduct, was right in the centre of Italy. So if you'd landed on the coast, you couldn't have got in without being found. And so Pritchard briefs his men, they, they mount up the aircraft, they fly in, they, 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 they uh, deploy on the aqueduct, which in itself is an incredible um, achievement in terms of just the navigation alone. And when they get there, Pritchard realised that one stick of six men has been dropped in the wrong valley, and it's his sappers, it's his explosive experts. And he's got one explosive guy left, a lieutenant... Um, Big Canadian Patterson was his nickname, James Patterson, uh, who was a very physically a large Canadian chap. And he says to Patterson, look, you're the only sapper left. Look at the aqueduct, it sits on three piers. Tell me what you can do. And the other thing, the other problem is that the explosives were carried in containers, um, held under the wings, 
And because it was so cold, being February in the Apennine Mountains, a lot of them had frozen. So when they gather the explosive together, they've got about a third of what they should have had. So Pritchard says to Patterson, look, tell me what you can do. And so uh, Patterson gets a hammer and chisel and knocks the render off the nearest pier of the aqueduct. And they realise that rather than it being masonry, brickwork, which is what they've been briefed by intelligence, it's actually made of reinforced concrete. And reinforced concrete, as you know, takes many, many times the explosive force to destroy. So at that stage, they've got only one sapper, a third of the explosive, and it's made of reinforced concrete. And Patterson says, well, rather than blowing up all three piers, which we can't do, we'll, we'll, tr we'll target the one with all the explosives we've got and cross our fingers and pray. And that's exactly what they do. And, um, you know, when, when, when they light the fuses and the charges go off, there's a mother of all explosions. And when the dust and debris clears, they have, they've blown up the one pier and they've brought the aqueduct down and all the water is rushing uselessly down the valley. So it's massive cheer from all the men. They've pulled off the mission. And then... Pritchard gathers, gathers his men and says, OK, this, you know, now you need to know what the escape plan is. And he says, we are going to move west through the uh, Apennine Mountains. And six days from now, HMS Triumph, a British submarine, will pull into the Selle River estuary. And we will rendezvous with it and it will take us offshore and take us back to Malta. That's the escape plan. And so in small groups, they move into the mountains. And it's, it's one of the worst winters in, in, in living memory in Italy. Terrible conditions, snow, blizzards. Uh, freezing cold, terrible mud, and they start trying to move west. Meanwhile, where things really start to go wrong, there was a very, very uh, well-known, famous and, and, and talented um, reconnaissance pilot called Warburton, Flight Lieutenant Warburton, in, um, based in Malta. And he'd flown the reconnaissance missions, for example, for the, um, for the raid on Taranto when we blew up the... when, we, when the swordfishes attacked the Italian fleet. Anyway... 48 hours after Operation Colossus, he flies a reconnaissance mission over the valley and takes photographs, and they're brought back to Malta, and the photo analysts look at those photographs with their stereo viewers. And because they're taken from, you know, 15,000 feet, 10 to 15,000 feet, and they're, they're shot vertically down the target, it looks as if the aqueduct's intact because it dropped vertically. And so the photo analysts conclude the mission hasn't happened or hasn't been a success. So the mission commander is forced to send a message to London saying, for whatever reason that we do not understand, Operation Colossus has failed. And so at the War Office, they conclude, well, it can only have failed if all the raiders were captured. So there must have been some intelligence leak and the, and the, and the Italians and Germans were, for, were forewarned. And so because of that, they cancel the submarine. So the submarine is recalled. And so there is no, there's no submarine to pick the... Pritchard and his raiders up, even if they do get to the coast, and that's the real um, that's the real tragedy of Operation Colossus. And and they all get captured. Some some are killed. They all get captured. Um, and it isn't until many months later, when the first escapee is um, Dean Drummond, who then became obviously you know you know of Arnhem fame, and then became the commander of the SAS post-war. And Dean Drummond gets back to the UK on his second escape attempt. And he comes back, and he, it's, that's the first proof, really, that uh, Operation Colossus was actually a success, and they, they had pulled it off. Uh, and by then, you know, the whole um, concept of airborne forces and airborne operations is up and running, and, uh, you know, air, British, air, British and, 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 and allied airborne forces are a force to be reckoned with. So that's the first kind of 
story told in, in, in the book. And going back to your question about Sterling and, and how the SAS was then formed officially. So and this, this is the fascinating thing. Clark in, 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 uh, in 41 is retasked, having formed the commandos, he's then sent to North Africa to run deception operations for British forces in, in North Africa battling Rommel. And his mission is to, to set up a dummy, a, a, a make-believe British airborne unit in North Africa to make the Italians believing we believe that we are deploying parachutists there. So the kind of thing he does is he gets guys dressed in 11 SAS uniforms to wander around Cairo, going to all the bars, pretending to get drunk and talking about airborne operations in North Africa, knowing that the Italian intelligence will pick up on it. Uh, and he gets uh, aircraft to drop dummy parachutes, parachutists in the desert where they know the Italians and Germans will see them. Okay, that's, that's Clark's mission there. I've got to say, let's pick it up. Cruising around Cairo getting wasted, bragging about being in the SAS, sounds yeah. like the job for me. <laughs> that sounds pretty epic. Can I quickly follow up on the aqueduct? Why did we not hear about three million Italians becoming refugees and all the water being cut off? Was the... Okay, so um, there are significant water shortages in, in, in those port areas, okay? But because it's one pier that's blown up, not three, it hasn't brought the whole thing down, it is repaired within about a month. And so within that time, there's enough water in the reservoirs so that we don't have massive amounts of death. But the plan was a good... If we'd brought all three piers down... Yeah. The plan was a great plan. plan was a great plan. And, you know, it, it, it caused a lot of... And, the, and one of the real kind of um, uh, unintended consequences of the mission, which was fantastic, because the Italians counted all the parachutes and there were double the number of parachutes at least as to the men dropped. Because, of course, the containers dropped under parachutes, but the Italians didn't realise that. So they thought there was anything up to 50 British parachutes that had gone into the mountains to cause havoc and chaos. So they mounted this massive operation to hunt down these men that didn't exist, because actually these were the parachutes of the containers. So it had lots of really interesting ramifications. But in, in, when Clark goes to North Africa to run his deception operation, uh, he meets Sterling when Sterling deploys to North Africa. And Sterling and he become friends, and Sterling says, look, I want to found this desert raiding force that will go behind, deep behind the lines and really cause Rommel problems at his main airports and ammunition dumps. And Clark says, well, look, you know, if you, rather than basing this upon, um, it's, you know, uh, no pedigree at all, take on the mantle of 11 SAS, take on that name, because it will, it will fill the Italians, especially, with more fear, because it has a track record. And, and of course, Sterling sees the sense of that. So he takes on the name and the mantle of a, of a unit that existed before. And that was the birth of the SAS in the desert. They're fascinating. That is fascinating. Now tell us, um, what about the raid that you move on to in late 1941? Okay, so come the autumn of '41. The losses of Allied uh, bombers are mounting exponentially. And actually, you don't need a great deal of losses to make it unsustainable. If you get above 4 or 5% of air crews and airframes per mission, it is unsustainable. That means that you will lose too many airframes and, and, and aircrew to actually continue bombing missions. And it was crucial at that stage because, if you know, as you'll know, on the Eastern Front, you know, the Russians lost millions and millions and millions of souls, as we know. 23 million, I think, it is throughout the war. And Stalin's demanding that, that, that the Allies do something to relieve that pressure. And the only thing we can do before D-Day, really, is to launch bombing raids. So getting the bombers through is crucial. It's crucial for that reason, among many other things. 
and Churchill is 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 is, is very very um, attuned to that 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 need and that demand. But our losses are unsustainable, and and we start to believe that our losses are unsustainable because the German flak and searchlights and night fighters are proving so accurate and effective because of radar. And another really really fascinating fact that that again I mean. I didn't know this. I thought we invented radar, and I thought radar won us the Battle of Britain. I thought it was a wholly British phenomenon. It's not true. Absolutely not true. So the Germans invented radar, and they invented it in something like 1904. The first radar was on a ship, and it was to, it was to detect other ships, ships as a navigational aid. Anyway, so come autumn 41, there is this, there is this argument raging in top scientific and military circles as to whether the Germans have radar. And you have people like Watson Watt and others who invented radar in Britain saying, of course they don't have it. It's a British invention and Germans can never have really uh, you know, mastered the technology. And it's, it's fascinating kind of aside, but in 39, Battle of the River Plate, when, when the Graf Spee scuttled, the German pocket battleship, okay? We, and it's scuttled, but its superstructure is left above the water. And um, we smuggle a, um, a British radar expert called Labouchere Hilliard Bainbridge Bell aboard the Graf Spee, posing as a scrap metal dealer, right? And he gets aboard the Graf Spee and he climbs onto the superstructure and he photographs and documents this uh, oblong wire mattress shaped device, which clearly a gun laying radar. He photographs it and then he actually retrieves it and brings it back to the UK. So we have photographs and a report and an example of the German's radar brought back to the UK. It's shelved and forgotten conveniently. It's absolutely extraordinary. And so still, by the late 1941, there is this argument raging at top circles whether the Germans have radar. And there's a, um, a very, very talented um, radar expert and, and photo analyst based, based at RF Medmanham, the photo reconnaissance unit. Um, and he sees this um, tiny dot from a high-level reconnaissance photograph sat on the French cliffs at Bruneval, just north of La Havre. It could be a cow, it could be a speck of dust on the film, but he has a hunch that it's a, 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 a form of German radar that we suspect they have, which is a paraboloid dish, about 20 feet across. Now, to give you an indication of, of, of what that would mean technologically, our radar is chain home. Chain home are masts 200 to 300 feet tall, and they sit statically on the coast. And they, they, they broadcast broad spectrum. If, if this is a, 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 we believe, we suspect, a 20-foot across paraboloid dish mobile radar unit, and it's directional. You know, this is groundbreaking stuff. And, um, and, and Wavell believes that, that, that he's found a, a, a site of one of these Würzburg uh, Enigma intercepts. We knew it was called a Würzburg paraboloid dishes. And so he says to uh, another very, very brave and talented uh, reconnaissance client called, called Tony Hill, he says, could you go and get a low-level photograph of that to prove it? And in the UK, flying from the UK, the, the photo reconnaissance squadrons had perfected what they called dicing. And the name came from dicing with death. And that was flying very, very, very low-level photo reconnaissance missions. So you could capture something like that in real detail. And so Hill flies a mission the next day, 100 feet above the, the, what they believe to be the radar site, and he sees with his naked eye the radar dish sat next to a very ugly 1920s French chateau on the cliffs looking out across the channel. 
And he comes back to the UK and, and unloads his film, his camera's failed. So he goes to Wavell and says, look, I don't have the photographs, but I can tell you that is the Würzburg we found it. And he goes back the next day. You're not allowed to do this for obvious reasons. Forewarned is forearmed. Uh, he flies back the next day, flies a second dicing mission, and this time brings back what are really, the, what some of the most classic reconnaissance photographs of the war. They're up there with when they found the Bismarck in the Norwegian fjords, absolutely extraordinary. And it shows this 20 foot dish um, sat next to the chateau and, it, and it's clearly the, the, the Germans Würzburg radar. But equally importantly, it shows there's a beach just down below, 500 feet below. And it's obvious to those looking at, at these photographs what needs to be done, it needs to be stolen. We need to steal their radar, this is clear. Um, what will that achieve? Well, it will achieve a number of things. One, it will prove once and for all the Germans have radar. If you've got it, no one can claim you don't anymore. They don't anymore. But more importantly, it will enable us to, it should enable us to copy it and make our own version. But more importantly still, it should enable us to work out how to jam it and blind it. And that's the intention. And so a mission is, is planned to go and steal the Würzburg radar. And because the beach is menaced by German machine gun posts, you clearly can't land a seaborne force. So it has to be an airborne operation, dropping in behind the chateau, taking the radar from the land side and then descending to the beach and being taken off by, by, uh, by um, landing craft. And so the mission falls to the uh, British airborne forces. So 11 SAS has now become the SAS in North Africa and the airborne forces who, who had been trained after them in their spirit are now the beginnings of the parachute regiment. And so um, it's Major John Frost of Arnhem fame who, who is given the mission, C Company uh, of, of the Parachute Battalion are um, tasked to do this, 90 men, they're trained. And what becomes quite clear very quickly is that it's challenging enough to parachute in, but then to get off by boat and rendezvous with those boats on a dark, night dark coast is very, very difficult. They're training for this operation in Scotland and the, none of the dress rehearsals go to plan. This is a very challenging mission. And all the um, all they have to study in terms of previous operations is Colossus. And although by now reports have come back that Colossus was a success, you know, in the military, like in, in, in most walks of life, nothing succeeds like success, but nothing fails like failure. And so because it's been branded a failure and all the official reports have said it's a failure, although we know differently now, it's still seen as a failure. So the omens are not particularly good. Um, and the other thing that becomes very clear is that although Frost and his men are absolutely first-class airborne troops, they're not radar experts. And to take apart a Würzburg radar <laughs> and bring it down to the beach intact, and the boffins have given them a shopping list, and at the top of the shopping list is the aerial that spins around in the middle of the dish. And at the bottom of the shopping list is the labels which sit on the individual components, and there's everything else in between. Well, to get all that kit and steal it intact... You, re you need a radar expert. And so there was a, um, a radar boffin called um, Priest, Donald Priest, who worked out of the Telecommunications Research Establishment in Dorset, which was our raid, secret radar facility. And he gets a phone call, and he's taken to Salisbury Plain, and he said, we're going to train you and parachute you in to, to make sure that we steal this thing properly. And Priest says, fantastic, absolutely love to go. Um, and... And then the, 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 the mission commanders realise something. If you parachute in one of your top radar experts, 
What's the danger? Well, the danger is the mission goes wrong and he gets captured. And then your mission to steal their, their radar actually becomes a mission where they steal all your radar secrets. So Priest is told, no, you can't go. What you can do is you can go on the boats that will sit offshore to bring the radar back so that you will receive it and bring it back to the UK, but you can't go ashore. And so there's a chap called um, Flight Lieutenant Cox, uh, based in the West Country, who's working on, on, on a searchlight radar station. And he gets given a, um, a rail warrant by his commanding officer. And he says, go to London, to the Air Ministry. So Cox goes to London, to the Air Ministry, and um, meets the commanding officer there. So, so in, in the documents in the National Archives, the orders about priests are exactly that. It is, the order says, you know, this individual at no cost is allowed to fall into enemy hands. It doesn't say you're going to shoot him, but the implication is perfectly clear. You know, <laughs> they were not going to allow a priest or Cox indeed to fall into hands of the enemy. So Cox gets a railway and goes to London and, and he meets the commanding officer at the air ministry who says, uh, well done for volunteering. And Cox says, sorry, sir. He says, well done for volunteering. He says, volunteering for what? And he says, you haven't volunteered? And Cox says, no, I, I was given a railway and told to come to London. So the commanding officer says, well, would you like to volunteer? And Cox said, what am I volunteering for? He says, well, I can't tell you, it's top secret. And Cox says, well, would it be dangerous? And, and the commanding officer says, well, this is wartime. Co you know, Cox, of course it will be dangerous. And Cox says, well, I, I suppose I'd better volunteer then. And so he's given another rail warrant, sent to Ringway in Manchester, which is the parachute training school. And when he arrives there, of course, he starts to get an idea what he's let himself in for. And the commanding officer of Wing Ringway has a letter from the, the, the chap in the air ministry explaining that this, this guy has come to be trained for this mission. And he knows Cox doesn't know a thing about what he's led himself in for. So he sits him down and says, look, he says, you don't know why you're here. So, so Cox is told, you know, the nature of the operation. And he's asked, you know, you're going to have to do six jumps and then you're going to deploy. And there's only a few days before they're actually going in. They have to go in during the moon window. The moon window is those few days in the month where you've got enough moonlight for the pilots to navigate purely by using, you know, the naked eye to see features on the ground, but not too much illumination so all the parachuters get shot in the air. Cox trains, does his six jumps, and he joins the force just before they deploy. And then they fly in um, in, in, in February 42 to, to launch the operation. No dress rehearsal's gone to plan. They've all failed. And, you know, you can appreciate this, but when they're flying in, you're, by its very nature of this mission, you have to fly down the, the very guts of the thing that's put, put there mm -hmm. to find you. You know, you're going to attack a radar dish, which is there to find aircraft coming in. So clearly they're detected very early. They're under fire, lots of evasive action. They, there are flak boats moored off the French coast, which are, you know, targeting them with murderous fire. And probably because of that, they're sent in in three waves, and the first four aircraft, the guy in charge of that, that, that first, uh, uh, the first guys to deploy, is a, is a Lieutenant Charteris, and his nickname was Junior. And he was called Junior because he was not even 21. That's the other thing that really is extraordinarily striking about this mission, uh, and, and, and Colossus, is the youth of these guys. Charteris is on that plane flying in, and he speaks to his second-in-command, and he finds out that he also has a birthday, more or less on the same day as Charteris, about in a week's time. And they're both going to turn 21. And he says, we're going to survive this mission and we're going to celebrate our birthday together. So when they parachute in after all this evasive action, Charteris lands, they break open the weapons containers, arm themselves, 
And when he looks at the terrain, he thinks, this doesn't look right. And they've studied the models back in the UK, says so this isn't the right valley. And he realises they've been dropped in the wrong place. And it's his force, they're mainly Seaforth Highlanders, who are charged to take the beach. So you can steal the radar, but what's the point if you can't actually evacuate it because the beach isn't taken? And so Charteris thinks, well, have we been dropped short or long? Mm. Are we before the drop zone or after the drop zone? He doesn't know. And he thinks, and then he sees the next flight of aircraft go over and he, th he, he thinks, I think they're, they're dropping ahead of us. He doesn't see it, but that's what he, he deduces. So he says, we'll march in the direction the aircraft have flown. And as soon as we hear gunfire, we will run to the sound of the guns because that's where we know the action is. So they set off. Meanwhile, Frost's force are dropped on the right drop zone. They move forward. Uh, significant uh, firefight. They take the radar site. There are casualties, but they take it. And then Cox comes in and starts to dismantle it. And you've got one chap who's got to um, climb into the middle of the dish with a hacksaw as, as rounds are pinging off this big steel dish to saw off the aerial and about five foot cross aerial, take that down. And you've got another chap who's been told to and trained to take photographs with a flash camera because they don't know if they'll get the whole thing before they have to withdraw, so they want to record it. And every time he's using the flash, of course, they all get silhouetted and, silhouetted, and there's a hail of incoming fire. And eventually Frost yells out the order, stop taking bloody photographs. <laughs> Cox manages to dismantle pretty much the whole thing, and they've got trolleys, not quite Tesco shopping trolleys, but not far off. They're foldable steel frame canvas trolleys with two wheels, and they load all the radar loot into the trolley and start to push it across the cliffs, take it down to the beach. And it's only when they get to the lip of the gorge that they realise that uh, the beach has not been taken because savage hail of fire. Uh, the, the CSM, Strachan, of, of the unit is, is cut down. Frost is having to patch him up on the cliff top, top, administer morphine. They're pinned down, they can't uh, descend to the beach. And the Germans, meanwhile, have, 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 are bringing reinforcements. They've retaken the chateau, they retake the radar pit, they're advancing on the cliff top. It's looking pretty dire. And it's only when they hear the, um, the war cry of the Seaforth Highlanders. It's the antlers of the deer. It's in Gaelic, I, I can't render the Gaelic, but they hear that echoing up from the valley of the gorge, and, and, and then the, 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 the beach is cleared and, and, and Charteris can yell up, the beach is taken, the beach is taken. Frost and his men rush down that slope, carrying all the radar gear. They've abandoned the trolley, get onto the beach, and um, you know they now believe maybe they can pull it off. And then the real kind of drama becomes, actually, where's the, where's the evacuation force? Because mist has rolled in, the signals that Frost has agreed, so he's got a blue torch with which he signals out to sea, blue filtered torch. They fire red flares, which is the emergency signal. They're, tr they're supposed to be in radio contact with the Tormenta flotilla, flotilla is it codenamed, uh, MTBs and landing craft. There's no radio contact. Uh, and it's reaching the cutoff point by which they know the flotilla's been ordered to withdraw. It has to withdraw by like 2.45 to get back uh, to British waters before you know, daylight. And they're thinking, well, we're going to be abandoned here. And it's actually a really gutsy call by the commander of the Tormenta Flotilla, who was a Royal Australian Naval commander called Cook, who decides unilaterally, despite seeing no signals or getting any radio calls, to send his boats in. He sends the boats in. Uh, there's a cheer from the beach, um, and under, uh, you know, 
savage fire, they managed to get the wounded aboard, get the radar loot aboard and evacuate everyone, pull them off the beach. And um, the first landing craft with the radar loot rendezvous with the MTB, motor torpedo boat, on which Donald Priest, the radar expert, is. And he looks at all the loot that's brought aboard and it's absolutely extraordinary. They've brought everything on the shopping list and it's all intact. And nothing has been shot, nothing's been damaged and nothing's been dropped in the sea. It's completely remarkable. And so that MTB then turns around and, and, and makes, you know, attracts for uh, Portsmouth at high speed and the radar loot is sped back to the UK. Meanwhile, Frost is on the landing craft and finally, radio contact is established with the beach. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs, and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, Sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Why would there be radio contact with the beach? He thinks he's taken everybody off. Well, several of the uh, of the radars have been trained as medics because they can't afford to take a, you know a specific medical force in. Those guys have tended to linger behind to try to look after the wounded and the dying of the, of the raiding force, and because of that, they've not got to the beach in time. So six men have been left behind, and at that moment, Frost is arguing. They turn around the boats and go back in again. And actually, as they came off the beach, 
they could see headlights coming down the gorge, which was tanks and, 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 and infantry, so the Germans coming to try and stop the evacuation. So Frost argues to turn the boats around and go back in, and Cook says, no, we can't do it, it's too risky, and rightly says we have to leave these guys behind. And so Frost leaves this kind of bittersweet um, sense. You know, the mission's been a success. They've pulled it off against all odds, but he's less, less, been forced to leave some of his men behind. Um, he gets back to the UK, has very little time to celebrate because he gets a summons from Churchill. So Frost gets a driver, take him to London to the war rooms, and he's got a personal um, audience with Churchill and all the top brass and top politicians. And Churchill's got um, the model of, of, of the Bruneval um, radar site, the chateau, the cliffs that they built to train. He's got it there in the war rooms. He says, talk me through the mission. So Frost tells the story. Mount Batten is there as well, who's the chief of combined operations. And at the end of it, Churchill gives this one of those rare, beautific smiles. And he runs his hand down the cliff of the model and says, if they come, this is how they will come, meaning if the Germans evade Britain. He says, we need more of these raids. There must be many more of them. So for him, this is like a twofold um, success. One, we've stolen the radar, which is great. But two, it's another proof that his concept of small-scale raiding operations can really score results. And that's kind of the end of the story in terms of the radar, the raiders. But in terms of the radar and, and what it, how it enabled us to win the war, uh, it's kind of the start of it because um, we've taken three prisoners, three German prisoners, or the raiders have. One of them is a radar expert, a Flieger Heller. And he is persuaded to show the boffins how to rebuild the thing. He clips it back, clips it back together again, like a giant Meccano kit. And it's taken to Dorset the Telecommunications Research Establishment. They power it back up again, bring it back to life, Frankenstein light. And from that, they work out how to build our own version, but more importantly, they work out that modern-day chaff, so the tinfoil strips dropped from aircraft, that was invented then. They worked out that tinfoil strips cut to a certain length would mimic on a, on, a, on a German Würzburg screen the radar signature of an Allied bomber. And over the North Sea, we, we perfect the scattering of chaff, chaff to, to blind the Germans' radar. And it's first used in the summer of '43. Uh, during the raids over Hamburg. And if you, if you read the transcripts of the German radar operators, it's, fan it's fascinating because they see this bomber stream uh, form up over the North Sea and they can count the number of Allied bombers coming. And then suddenly, as the bales of chaff are, are thrown out the back of the lead aircraft, the German radar uh, operator transcripts say, my God, my God, you know, the Alli Allies are, are re replicating themselves. There are thousands of them. And during those raids over Hamburg, the, the, the searchlights and the flak towers and the German night fighters were completely, completely ineffectual, completely blinded by the use of window. And then just days later, uh, Churchill, he tasked Bomber Harris and says the most important use of this of window is going to be the raid of Pina over Pienemund, where the V1 and V2s were being made. It was really, I think, the longest penetration into, into German territory of the time. And he says, we need to get the bombers through, we need to use window. And because of the use of the window, they do get through to Pienemund. Pienemund is bombed, and it's because of that that the SS take over personal command of the V1 and V2 programmes, and it's all moved underground. And it puts the V1 and V2 programme back anything between three to six months. 
And that saves, you know, thousands of Allied lives in Britain and elsewhere because the V2s and V1s cannot be deployed. And then the final kind of genius of 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 window and and how it's um how it's utilized by the allies is the boffins at tre realize if we can use a tinfoil strip to mimic a bomber what can we not mimic and so they start to experiment and they work out if you for example tow a barrage balloon behind a small boat with the right tinfoil wrapped around it it appears like a battleship on a radar screen and so they think okay we can create a ghost fleet so when D-Day happens, the invasion fleet, the real invasion fleet, sails to the Normandy beaches, but the ghost fleet that they create sails to Calais. And, I mean, an incredible genius. After the raid on, on Brunewald and the Würzburg was stolen, no one wanted to tell Hitler for obvious reasons, none of the Germans, because he wouldn't be very happy. When eventually they do tell him, he's not very happy at all. And he orders... Um, massive defensive be put around all the Würzburg sites and there's thousands of them all along the coast of occupied um, uh, Europe and so they do they put these these rings of barbed wire and defenses around all the Würzburg sites but because of that you can't mow the grass where the barbed wire is and we nicknamed it the wiring panic so these these dark green rings appear around all the Würzburg sites and so high level photo reconnaissance can just find them all okay so we know where they all are and so in the run-up to D-Day, we bomb all the Würzburg sites except those which will see the ghost fleet coming. Do you get my drift? So the ones at Calais, we don't destroy. And so when the ghost fleet um, sails towards Calais, the Germans see it on the radar screens, believe that's where we're going to launch the invasion. And that's part of the reason why the casualties on D-Day are so much less than we feared they would be. And at the end of the war, there was a, so on VE Day, there was a press conference held in London by top commanders and politicians. And again, it's extraordinary because I had no idea about this. They said uh, winning the radar war was more important than, than winning the race to build the atom bomb. The race for the nuclear weapon? Yeah, so, so there was a press conference held by top politicians and military commanders in London on VE Day, at which they, 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 they revealed the, the importance of winning the radar war. And they said winning the radar war was more important than winning the race to build the atom bomb. Radar had been to so top secret during the war, even after Operation Biting, huge publicity, you can imagine it. That was our darkest hour. Singapore had just fallen. You know, we had, had defeat after defeat after defeat. So, you know, 90 raiders, 120 with all the ancillary, you know, forces going and stealing this top secret piece of German kit and pulling it off against all odds. It was all over the press, and particularly over the American press as well. But we didn't say that it was radar. It was still top secret. And, and the development of window to blind the radar was so, so secret that even at the end of the war, during that press conference, when one of the journalists asks you know, a question about did we develop uh, technology to blind the, the, Germans, the enemy's radar, and if so, how, that's one of the questions they're not willing to answer. So this story of this secret battle for control of the skies utterly utterly fascinating and so little understood and really the the work of that of the, of the telecommunications research establishment it was called telecommunications research establishment as a cover of course it wasn't about telecommunications at all they just chose that name as a cover story and it's fascinating that the guys working for TRE as it, as it was the acronym 
Now, these were young men. You know, they were men in their 20s and early 30s. Young, physically capable men, dressed in civilian clothes, doing something that they couldn't tell anybody what they were doing, not even their wives and children. And so they would get abuse on the streets for being draft dodgers and cowards. And they couldn't then say, well, we're actually doing top secret work, which will win the war. So they actually had a really hard time. Um, so in a way, it's the kind of forgotten Bletchley story. This is the, this is the setup, 1,500 scientists, you know, working a way to win this war for control of the skies, which remains so, still such an untold story. And I've interviewed two of the last surviving veterans of TRE. There's a chap in Malvern called John Hooper and a chap in um, Slough called um, Laurie Hinton, both of whom were, were radar boffins. And the really fascinating thing was, even now, today, when I sat down to interview them, there was reticence to actually speak about what they had done. They'd all signed the, the Official Secrets Act, they'd never spoken about it, and they still felt constrained by the, the, the requirements of secrecy. Well... They're not secret anymore. They've been on the pod. Thank you very much, Damon Lewis. The new book is called SAS Shadow Raiders, the ultra-secret mission that changed the course of World War II. It's another, it's another smash hit. Well done, you. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.